Good morning. Um, I don't know if I'm a familiar face. I don't know. Does two times make somebody familiar? I was, I was here back in March, um, and it's uh, great to be back again um, with you all. Last time I was here back in March, uh, Dick asked me to uh, bring to you God's word on the, the parable of the uh, bridegroom and bride, the, um, the cloth, the patch on the, new, on the cloth, and the new wineskins. And uh, after that time, uh, when I was with you uh, a few weeks later, I, I guess I did something right, because uh, Dick then invited me back, which was great. I, I, I enjoyed my time here with you all, and, and uh, so I was eager to, to return. And, and I, I have to admit, and this is uh, almost to my shame, I have to admit, when, when Dick invited me back and he gave me this passage in Luke chapter 8, I, I, he said, Luke chapter 8, I, I turned to it, I looked, and I said, oh, the parable of the sower. And, and to my shame, I have to admit this. I mean, as a preacher, right, every time I come to the, God's word, I, I should be like, oh, what, you know, what does God have for me? This parable, to me, uh, my, my reaction was, well, I understand this one. I know this one. It's a familiar one. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, there wasn't the enthusiasm that, um, that should have been there. And, and then, you know, uh, as I was preparing or uh, praying about what, what the Lord wanted for you, for me, out of this. Uh, then Dick wrote back and he said, you know, you can even actually, we're, we're going a, a different direction. You could do one of the, the fruits of the Spirit. And, and as I prayed, God just didn't release me from this passage that I wasn't too enthused about. Um, I, it was interesting, the, the thought to go into uh, the fruit of the Spirit, but he just didn't release me, even given that option to change. And I sensed, the more and more I prayed about it, the more I thought about it, my attitude, obviously, was wrong. I understand this, God. And he said to me, the more, that there was still so much more for me to understand about his word. But in order for me to understand it, I was realizing I need to stand under it. And that's the, what I want us to see today with this very familiar passage. In order to understand it, we must first be willing to stand under it, stand under his word. But before we go further, let me pray for our time together as we enter into God's word. Let me pray. Lord God, our Father, as we approach what for many of us perhaps is a very familiar passage, uh, my prayer is that just as you got a hold of Luke and enabled him in his research and writing his gospel to, to write down these words exactly the way that you wanted them recorded for us. My prayer is that in your mercy and your grace, you would also get a hold of us with this passage and enable us to bow our hearts and bow our minds so that we come under, stand under your word in order to understand it in perhaps a whole new way. I know this is your heart's desire, and so I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, often, I don't know about for you, but often I've heard that uh, the parables of Jesus um, 
are here for us, Jesus teaches in parables, in order to make his message more clear or simpler to understand. And, and while that is probably often true, I don't think it's always true. But what I would say, um, just as I approach this parable and any of Jesus' parables, what I would say uh, from my study, from uh, the, the conversations I've had, from what I've read, what is always true about Jesus' parables is that even if they're not always taught in order to make clear, they are always taught in order to make us think. Jesus teaches in parables in order, oftentimes, to catch us off guard. Uh, and, and in doing so, to reposition us, to think differently. Even if, especially when they're difficult to understand, um, and he wants to make it clear, he makes it clear in order to make us think and say, ah, I didn't get that the first time in his teaching, but now in the parable, I can think differently. And that different way of thinking that he desires for us is for us to gain a new perspective and for us to gain his perspective. His perspective on life, his perspective on who he is, his perspective on his kingdom. Now the danger is, when we approach any of his parables, and maybe we know them well, the danger is, like my danger that I encountered in approaching Luke 8, is that we feel we know his parables already, and so we stop thinking. When we stop thinking, then we also stop having his perspective. And that's a dangerous place to be. And so I am grateful in my preparation that, um, that God challenged me with, with his perspective. Challenged me to think as I approached his word. And, and one of the things that I, as I studied, that I, the first question that I had, or at least one of the first ones, was this key biblical truth that I offered to you guys this morning. This is a big question, I think. Is this parable about the sower, which is how the NIV sees it, right? The, the heading in the NIV is the parable of the sower. Or is it about the seed? Or is it about the soil? And I, I, I think it's an important question to ask as we enter into it. Clearly, as we unpack the, the parable, as Jesus unpacks it for us, maybe that's why I had such a hard time entering into it, because I understand this. Jesus already taught it. What, as, I, as a preacher, can I bring to you that Jesus hasn't already said? Jesus unpacks it for us. Clearly, it's about him and his ministry. He is the sower who is sowing seed in the soil. The seed, as he tells us in, in verse 11, is the word of God. It's the word about the kingdom of God and about the God of the kingdom. And as Luke tells us back in verse 1, Jesus is traveling now from one town to, and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. This is what he's about. He's the sower sowing the seed of the word of the kingdom of God into the hearts and minds of, of the people that he encounters. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Now, the word proclaim here is, is interesting because it's the same, it has the same root word as good news. Or perhaps if you have the older version of the NIV, it's gospel. 
gospel equals good news, right? And the root here is the same root as proclaim. In effect, we could translate it, he's good newsizing the good news of the kingdom. It's the same root. The root there is euangelio. Uh, euangelizo is, is the verb. Euangelio is the same word for evangelize, for evangel, for evangelical, for good news, for gospel. It's all the same root. So Jesus is evangelizing the evangel of his kingdom. He's gospelizing the gospel of his kingdom. He's good newsizing the good news of his kingdom. That's what Jesus is about. Now, the word gospel, if I may, it's such a Christian word, right? And maybe Dick has, has brought this to you. Maybe this isn't nothing, anything new, but it bears repeating. Good news or, or gospel in the first century was not a Christian word. It wasn't a church word. It wasn't a Jewish word. It, it, was, a, it was a word. It was a secular word. It, it had the imagery. It's the word that the king used. The emperor used when he wanted to make a proclamation about his kingdom. What Caesar wanted, the word that Caesar used to make a proclamation about his empire. It was a secular word. So when Caesar wanted to declare to his people, make a proclamation that he had just conquered the enemy, he would send runners out all throughout the kingdom and they would declare, they would proclaim, they would good news eyes. Caesar has won the victory. If, if Caesar wanted to make a new proclamation of, of something going on in the kingdom, he sent his runners out to good news eyes about this proclamation. If Caesar wanted to declare new taxes on all his people, he would send good news eyesers, and that would not be received as good news. But that's what, he, that's what the king did. He sent his good news out through his good newsizers to proclaim the gospel, the good news of his kingdom. And that's what Jesus is doing. Isn't that beautiful? That's what Jesus is doing. He's, he himself, the king himself, Caesar would never leave to go to every corner of, of his kingdom. But Jesus does. Jesus goes out to proclaim the good news of his kingdom. So the parable that he's telling us is showing us that the great sower has gone out and he is sowing the seed of his good news in the soil of the hearts and minds of his listeners. But is this a parable about him? Is it about the good news? Or is it about the hearts and minds of of those who are listening? Is it about the sower, the seed, or the soil? Now I want us to move through each one of these, these three aspects, and maybe we can decide together or, or, or we can talk afterwards about which one we think. If our focus is on him, if our focus is on the sower, then what we see here, what Jesus is telling us, is that this is someone who is amazingly extravagant and generous in his technique. Look at how he does this. He throws seeds everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. Beside the road, on the rocky soil, among the thorns, and finally he makes it to the good soil. This sower is quite liberal 
with his resources. He's not doing any cost-benefit analysis of, of the seeds and the place where the seeds are being sown in order to maximize the effectiveness of each and every seed sown. Just a few chapters earlier, Jesus tells us in, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus tells us, he's calling his disciples to generosity, and he says to them, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured out in your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And I think he has in mind the sower here. He, in effect, he's saying, follow the example of the sower. The measure that you use, it will be used to you. Pack it down. It will press it down. It will come out overflowing in abundance into your lap, into every different place. The seed that you sow so generously, because that's who I am. And it will be measured to you. Be generous just as I am generous. Look at me in how I sow my word in every place, even places that people think are crazy. Live that way because that's how he lives. You know, we see this extravagant elsewhere. In, in the one miracle that all four Gospels record, it's the miracle of, of the feeding of the 5,000. And we see Jesus' extravagance in, in this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. We know the story, likely. Jesus takes a small offering. That's often our focus, right? He takes the small offering. Oh, Lord, take these five loaves and two fishes that I offer to you and multiply them. And we think that's his extravagance, right? He takes what little we offer and he multiplies it for 5,000. But the story goes on. That's extravagant, but the story goes on. He is even more extravagantly generous in the miracle that he does, because, as we all know, he sends the disciples out to gather up what was left over. What was left over after everybody had had their fill. Everyone was satisfied, was full. And he sends the disciples out after everybody has gotten everything that they could stuff into their mouth. And the disciples bring back 12 baskets full. He's extravagant in that he feeds 5,000, and he is generously extravagant in that he has 12 basketfuls left over. This is the sower, the extravagantly generous sower who sows on every single type of soil with his seed. Such extravagance, it would, could almost be called indiscriminate. Such extravagant could be worthy of giving him the label that, that, that he's going where people shouldn't go. Such extravagant earned Jesus the label of eating with sinners and tax collectors. Sowing in places that nobody wanted to go because that's hard soil, Jesus. And don't you realize they're not going to get it? Surely that's what this parable is about. It's about the extravagant generosity of the sower. Maybe so, unless we also look at the seed. <laughs> and if we look at the seed, then when we look more closely at the seed, we see that the sower has some pretty high expectations of this seed that he sows. The sower expe expects the seed to be fruitful. 
The sower is sowing seed that he sees as fruitful seed. He expects the seed to yield a crop, but not just any crop, right? What does he say? He says he expects a crop that is a hundred times more than what was sown. A hundred times. Now, I'm no farmer. I, I, I live in Jersey, the Garden State, which has the highest population density, and we have wall-to-wall people, it feels like, sometimes. I'm sure there's green space in Jersey somewhere, but I don't necessarily live in it. But, so I'm no farmer. But I'm not sure what, what an expected harvest should be. I actually wanted, this week, I wanted to go to our, our local farmer's market. That's about as close as I get to farming. Um, we actually, we have a garden, um, but it's more my wife's garden. Um, so I'll take credit for it when the harvest is good, but it, she does the work. But I was tempted this week to go to a local, the farmer's market, just down the street. And I wanted to ask them, as farmers, what is a, a good harvest? I, I, part of me thinks, maybe you know, maybe two times. You sow once, you get twice. If, That'd be pretty impressive, I would think. And then I thought, well, maybe, maybe it's five times, right? I, I can imagine five times a return on, on the seed sown. That probably is bumper crop quality. Tenfold, I suspect, would be unheard of. Twentyfold? Twentyfold is probably, then you'd think, a farmer would probably say, well, uh, now you're getting out of hand, twentyfold. How about fiftyfold? Fiftyfold. Maybe that's the, the realm of, of hyperbole. Sixty? Eighty? Is that what Jesus says? No. His seed reaps a harvest of a hundredfold beyond the realm of hyperbole. So far out there, we think he must be kidding. And he's not. He expects from the seed that he sows, an unbelievable harvest. That's fruitfulness. That's the fruitfulness of the seed that he sows. And what is the fruit? What does a fruitful seed look like? What does what kingdom fruit look like, if that's what we're talking about? Jesus uses the word in verse 14, he uses the word mature. Kingdom fruit is mature fruit. Uh, the, now, the word for mature here is, is, the, is the Greek word telos. Telos has the sense of goal. It has the sense of destination. It has the sense of destiny. Uh, the, um, a mature fruit, uh, a, a mature seed has reached its destination. It has reached its in inherent destiny. You don't see the, the destiny in the seed itself, but when it comes to maturity, then you see it. The, the telos of a sunflower seed is the sunflower. The, the telos of, of a grain of wheat is the wheat. The, the telos of an acorn is the oak tree. The telos of a seed of the kingdom is the life of the kingdom. As Jesus sows the seed of his kingdom into the hearts and lives of the people who are listening, his, his pro, listening to his proclaiming and his good news ising, he fully expects to see kingdom fruit emerging. He fully expects to see kingdom lives emerging in 
the hearts and lives of the people who are listening. That's what his Sermon on the Mount is all about in Matthew 5 through 7. If you listen to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he is preaching, he's declaring his good news, fully expecting to see Sermon on the Mountainness in the hearts and lives of the people who are listening or reading. He expects to see that fruit appear in their lives. Now, I think a number of the New Testament writers pick up on this on this seed and, and the expectation of the seed. James, in, in his letter, in James 1.21, writes, Humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. The word has been planted. It's a seed. Peter, in, in his first letter, writes, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. The word, Peter knows, is the seed. And he heard that from Jesus. And Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, declares that the good news, what, what he calls uh, the word of truth, the, wor- the, the word of truth, Paul writes, has been bearing fruit, kingdom fruit, all over the world. So the sower extravagantly, generously sows this this fruitful, abundant seed. And he expects to see the inherent destiny of the seed, abundant kingdom fruitfulness, emerge in the hearts and lives of those who hear, in the hearts and lives of each and every one of us. That's what he's expecting. Surely that's what this parable is about. Unless we look at the soil. And so we look at the third part of Jesus' parable here. Jesus identifies four different types of soil that receive the seed. Four different types of human hearts, or, or maybe more accurately, four different human heart conditions. Four different heart conditions upon which the seed falls. He describes the hardened, trampled heart. Uh, He describes the shallow, rocky heart, the, the the frazzled, cluttered, going-in-all-directions heart. And then he describes the the receptive heart, what what Jesus calls the noble and and good heart. Now, I'm sure each and every one of us has encountered that heart, these four hearts in in people that we've we've walked with and and lived with. And and I suspect, if we're honest, that um, each and every one of us have experienced these conditions of the heart in our own lives. There are probably aspects of our own lives that are trampled on, and we are reluctant, resistant to let Jesus into those trampled on parts of our lives. There are rocky places in our hearts. There are frazzled, uh, cluttered places in our hearts. I mean, after all, we live in the metro New York area, and this is a frazzled, cluttered part of the world. But thankfully, there are also receptive places in our hearts. And, and, and so as Jesus unpacks these, we see people that we're walking with, and, and I think we see ourselves as well. With the first soil, Jesus is warning us that, that 
as he says, those who have heard, but to whom the devil has come and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved, these people are in a very vulnerable position. It's a very vulnerable heart condition to have. Jesus is telling us that there is a very real, a very personal um, opposition to him and his kingdom. And that real and personal opposition, Satan and, and his forces, is prowling around, as, as it says in Scripture, prowling around like a, a, a lion. And he is preying on hardened hearts. You see, Satan knows that the seed of, of Jesus' word, the seed of the word of the kingdom of God, is powerful enough to break through even the most trampled heart. And so Satan is prowling around, seeking to snatch the seed away so that the hardened heart stays hardened. You see, Satan knows that even if we open up to Jesus' word, even just a little bit, if the word rests on our heart just a little while, it's going to crack through that hardened, and we're going to open up a little bit, and then the seed will take root, and then Satan will have no room to do the work that he wants to do. So he tries to get there before the word can even crack through a little bit. So that's a warning to us. When the word of God is opened to us, when we open it, don't let the word of God pass by. Don't let it be so familiar to you that you you think you understand and it passes by. Because if you let it pass by, then Satan will rejoice at the opportunity to snatch it away from you. The second soil, Jesus says, is the, uh, are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. Jesus is telling us here that times of testing will come. It's not if a time of testing comes, but in the time of testing. The time of testing will come. The seed of the kingdom takes root in our lives, and yet situations arise, they will arise, where we will be tempted to pull back from that inherent destiny that the seed is trying to plant in us. That life lives all in for the kingdom of God. Matthew, when, when he tells, when he recalls this parable of Jesus, he tells it by describing situ- situations as arising from troubles and persecutions. Troubles and persecution. The word trouble here has, has the sense of pressure, um, unbearable pressure sometimes. It's, it's pressure that arises when two forces bear down on one another. The the picture that I was taught years ago when I first heard this was the picture of tectonic plates bearing down on one another. Anybody from California knows what tectonic plates are all about, right? Um, I've experienced two earthquakes in my life, and they were hardly anything, but scary enough. Tectonic plates are when the, the plates in the earth rub against each other. When pressure is created between the two plates and at some point they finally slip and an earthquake arises. Well, that's the picture. Two plates are rubbing against each other and we often feel like we are caught in that trouble, 
in that, in that pressure, that crushing pressure between the plates, the plate of the kingdom of God and the plate of the kingdom of this world. And we feel like we are about to be crushed in between those two plates as they converge on one another. That's the testing that Jesus says will come. When the kingdom of God breaks in on the kingdom of this world, we find ourselves caught in the middle of it. Troubles. Trials. And persecution, Jesus says. We face persecution. Matthew records it for us. Jesus saying persecution because of the word, not because of us. We face persecution not because of us, but because of the word, Jesus says, because his word confronts the strongholds, the idols, the the rocky foundation that these strongholds and idols seek to create in our lives. And when the seed, when the word comes upon that rocky foundation, the seed wants to break it up, wants to crack it up so that it can go deeper and deeper with its kingdom roots in our lives. And that threat, that very threat of being broken up, broken strongholds, broken idols, broken foundations of the forces that are seeking to rule our lives, when they feel that threat, they resist. And Jesus calls it persecution. Now with this, I mean... it's not that we are beaten down and, oh my, I should, um, I should expect trials and, and persecution. No, we should thank Jesus that he's being honest with us. This is how it's going to be. And so when it happens, you can know that it's going, it was going to happen. You were told that it would happen. So when it happens, don't shrink back. <clears throat> don't, don't back down. Instead, let the roots of the seed of his word, of the kingdom of God and the God of the kingdom, break apart the rocks and let that seed go deeper and deeper into your life. That's what he's telling us. And then seed three. Seed three is the heart condition of those who hear, Jesus says, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. Thank you very much. My peripheral vision was not there. <clears throat> so choked by life, life's worries, riches, and pleasures. And they do not mature. This is the frazzled, cluttered, stressed out lives, overloaded with all sorts of absolutely everything, which distracts us and bears us down. I won't ask for a show of hands, (laughs) but I think we can relate. The cluttered lives, life's worries, Jesus says. You know, I I know people whose love language, I think, is worry. Right? It's as if they're, maybe maybe you're one of them, maybe you're a parent, right? I mean, how many parents are guilty of worrying for our our children? (laughs) And... And we worry, and it's almost as if we're saying, if I'm not worried about you, I'm not loving you. But the root of worry isn't love. The root of worry is control. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. In in our selfishness, we seek to control life. We seek to control others. 
But in our heart of hearts, we know that we can't. And so when, when we strive to do so, the outcome of our sinful striving to control is worry. When we seek to control, the result is not control, it's worry. If we seek to control our lives, hear this, if we seek to control our lives or the lives of others, then we seek to be Lord of our lives, right? There is only one who can control, and that is the Lord. And so when we seek to do it, we are the Lord of our life, or seeking to be. And when we do that, the Bible calls that idolatry. We are setting up something in place of God, and in effect, we are worshiping that something. We are giving that something our full attention, whether it's ourselves or something else, whether it's our job, our stuff, whatever it is. We are setting that up as idolatry, and any life built on idolatry will be marked by profound worry. And that worry will choke us so that we cannot reach our kingdom destiny. The destiny of living life and life to the full, as Jesus describes it. Because we are not living for him, we are living for control. And the only fruit of control is worry. Add to that riches and pleasures, Jesus says. I don't need to explain how they trick us, right? Riches and treasures distract us. At best, they distract us. They deceive us at worst. They make us think, oh, my life is so frazzled and cluttered. All I need is to get away to the mountains. All I need is to get away to the shore. All I need is that shore house, that vacation, that whatever I can buy with my riches, whatever that pleasure is that I so desire. And riches and pleasures think that lead us to believe that we can be so distracted. And, and it's only distracting us, not from the worries. It's distracting us from the fruit of the kingdom that God is calling us to. And so Jesus speaks to the fourth soil, the good soil, he says. Those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. The seed falls on the soil, and the soil retains it. The New American Standard trans translates it, holds fast. I like that. The soil holds fast. It grabs a hold of the seed and doesn't let it go. No matter what trials or temptations come, this heart perseveres by holding fast. It perseveres by believing that the abundant, fruit-bearing, destiny-defining seed of the Word of God will take root, and it will bring about the maturity for which it was created. The, the inherent destiny of the seed is the maturity of the kingdom life that the sower expects to seed, and the soil grabs hold of that and says, this is what will happen not because of me, but because it's the inherent destiny of the seed that is now in me. And it doesn't let go. This is the soil that, that understands. Jesus uses the word in verse 10. It's the soil that understands. Understands not simply in the sense of 
cognitive understanding where we descend on the Word in order to understand it better and dig into it in order to pull out a nugget that I can carry with me through my life. No, we don't descend on the Word. Nor is it understand in the sense of many self-help books that, that seek to come alongside us as one of many companions in this already cluttered life that seeks to come alongside and explain this way and that way of life as, as some comfortable, cozy companion going alongside us, helping us understand what's going on. No, that's not God's Word either. It's understand. It's the soil that understands in the sense that it humbly seeks to stand under God's Word. Not over, not even alongside, but underneath God's Word. To receive from God's Word, to submit to God's Word, and its rock-breaking power over the idolatry and the bitterness and the resentment in our lives, and then just watch it all fall away. And it's beautiful to see those shackles fall away as we stand under the Word of God. It's the soil that stands under that, that ever-deepening root of His Word as it breaks through our shallowness, taking us further and further into the depths of Christ's kingdom. Further up and further in, that beautiful expression from C.S. Lewis in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, the last battle, let that root go further up and further in, deeper and deeper, shattering those rocky soils that, that keep us at such a shallow level in our lives so that we can know the depths of the kingdom of God. It's the soil that stands under His Word as His Word disentangles the clutter and frees us to live for the kingdom unencumbered, with so much less than we ever thought that we could live on, but, but with so much greater empowerment to live for Him. Stand under. It's the soil that lets the, the generous, extravagant sower sow the, the abundant life-giving, fruitful seed of His Word in our lives so that we become more and more the inherent destiny that we were created for. The life of the kingdom. His own life. Life abundantly. In us and through us, welling up out of us. That's what happens when we stand under His Word. So which is it? Is it the sower? Is it the seed? Or is it the soil? Maybe the NIV got it wrong, and it's about all three. They just didn't have a wide enough margin to put them all there. It's about the Lord. It's about Christ. Sowing the good news of the kingdom of God and the God of the kingdom in the hearts and lives of 
of people. May we be ones who understand and stand under this sower who sows the seed in our soil. And may we stand under as never before and then watch what happens. It's a beautiful thing. Let's pray together, shall we? What more can we say but what you have already said to us? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if, if we were able to speak back to you your glorious word, each and every word, from in the beginning all the way through to the very end. Amen. Maranatha. It, 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 would, it would not be enough to declare our great thanks and praise and, and all that you are. But may that be our goal. <laughs> that your word would be so in us that we would be able to speak it back to you. Would your, may your word find such purchase in our soil that we would speak it back to you with our words, with our deeds, with our lives. And may we then live your kingdom, the kingdom life, the life of Jesus, as a response of praise back to you. Now and forever. For that is the inherent destiny of who we are. May that be so. Amen and amen. For your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen.